very much that our church, we usually think about church like this. This is a Sunday morning gathering, right? We're all together. But we are trying very hard to get into our mindset that Into One Community Church exists like this. This is the church that we're talking about. At the edge of all of our relationships. So wherever you go, whoever you're with, we believe you're taking into one community church with you. And that is the congregation that we see. Not the people who are just here and always faithful. Tremendously important. But our goal is to make a difference in the world. And so the outreach side of what we do, of who we're with, so, so important. So um, this is just one of the ways that we can help to do that. All right, so Merlin uh, started us by giving us a reference to uh, Psalm 22. Psalm 22 is, uh, excuse me, I'm sure it felt kind of long for what we're no- we normally have as short kind of readings. But Psalm 22 is referenced by Jesus when he's on the cross. Our series is Red Letter Day. We're looking at the things that Jesus said when he was on the cross. When he said a line from it, the people in that day would understand that he meant the whole thing. And so for you to hear what Psalm 22 says it sounds really like it was written after Jesus was on the cross. But instead, it was written hundreds of years before. But it fills his, um, his mind, his position so well that it's important that you, you have an idea of what that is. So I would recommend to you sometime this week, go back over Psalm 22. It's an incredibly significant passage in its own right. But when we tie it into what we're looking at, at where Jesus is on the cross, Really, really important. So if you have your Bible, or uh, however, however, however else you're going to follow along, we're going to start with John 19. And today, we're going to do another significant chunk of Scripture that we're going to look at in the, the book of John. And I didn't reference it in events, so um, you might have to actually look that one up. If you're using like a real Bible or a digital Bible, just be ready for that. Okay, so Jesus is on the cross, and we're, we're, we're jumping in sort of midway. And just, you know, quick update, Jesus is having a really, really bad day. This thing on the cross is huge. John 19, 28, it says, Later, knowing that all was now completed, and so that Scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. There's some key parts that we pull out, even from there. That he said, later, knowing that all was now completed. Jesus lived his life, not like many of us. We are thrown by circumstances. When something comes up, we didn't see it coming, and it throws us right off. We could call that circumstantial living. We go along as far as things go our way, and then when the unforeseen happens, we're thrown. I didn't see that coming. We're we're thrown by things, and then, um, if you're like me, emotional cries just come out. And you think about this for yourself. Have you ever said something that you didn't mean to say? Today, (laughs) Um, have you ever wished that there was something that you had never said or that you could unsay? Yeah, a whole bunch of things that I wish I had never said that. I wish that had never come out of my mouth. It just slipped out. I got overwhelmed. I got intimidated by what was happening around me and I lost some control. We say things regularly that we don't mean. And we also don't say things that we really do mean. We are not always consistent in the way that we would communicate. There's so much that we try to hide. There's so much that we 
accidentally say, and then we don't know how to undo it. But Jesus, when he spoke, he said things, he said them on purpose. He was calculated. He meant what he said. And a lot of what Jesus said, when we have the opportunity to look at it and take some time to go through it, kind of even line by line, we can identify his things that he was saying in the, in the Gospels. They're messianic in nature. And messianic doesn't just mean they reveal him to be the Messiah. He, he was constantly, throughout his life, fulfilling the messianic prophecies of the Old Testament. Knowingly, he was aware of what was going on. They weren't just coincidence. And so, again, Psalm 22 is a great place to look back when he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you abandoned me? That was a line that we've already looked at. Um, if you go, go through the book of Isaiah, you'll find many, many places where Jesus is living out what is happening in what was referenced there. You can get it uh, Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy, there's a, there's a key passage in the Old Testament there that reveals who Jesus will be so that right from the early part, people were anticipating um, this character called Messiah. In the book of Leviticus, it comes up again. In the book of Exodus, it's there right at the beginning of the Old Testament. This story was set up so that there would be Messiah to come and people would know how to watch for it. And many of these passages that talk about the Messiah, um, they are well known. The people in that day, in, in Jesus' time, knew their scripture much better than we know ours. And they would be identifying these because they had been looking for Messiah. And when he said some of these things, what he's really doing is putting a stamp on them or, or clinching that deal to say, I am the one. And so that's why it says here, knowing that all was now completed and so that scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. In the New King James Version, oh, Lisa's not here. Shoot, she likes the New King James Version, so I was going to specifically do this for her, and Norm, you've got to tell her. Uh, in the New King James Version, it says, I thirst. And so that's the title that I wanted to pull out. It sounds, I don't know, somewhat better than I am thirsty. So in our, in our culture, you can identify it better because we've got, you know, iPad and iMac and iPad, and now you've got I thirst. It's, a, it's an Apple-sponsored sermon today. A jar of wine vinegar was there, and so they soaked the sponge in it, put the sponge on a stalk of the hyssop plant, and lifted it to Jesus' lips. And when he received the drink, Jesus said, it is finished. With that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Next, we talk about it is finished, but for today, I thirst. What does it mean when he says, I thirst? Well, the, the first thing that you could get from that is, well, I think it might mean that he's thirsty right? We don't always have to find something deep and totally hidden. I think that's part of the story. But for us to look at the story now and look back, we can identify from this passage. That's a very, very human thing. Jesus was thirsty. When, when at, pushed to his maximum, pushed to his limits, pushed to the edges, he revealed this human quality. When people say he was just God, he was a spirit that was put into... This is a very human thing to be able to say that he was thirsty. But third, I think when Jesus speaks like this, he has a clear, clear sense that this has been the, the summation of his life. This has been the key point that he's been waiting for his entire life to be in this place. And knowing that, he's identified that everything has already been fulfilled. So that scripture would be fulfilled, he said, I thirst. And for people, again, back in this time, they could reference a time that you would go back into the early Exodus. Exodus chapter 7 and 8. If you want to check this out, 
Look at it there. The Israelites have come out of slavery. They, they, they've come through Egypt, um, and they're now across the Red Sea, and they're wandering, and things in the desert aren't great. And so they come to this um, escape situation, and they say, I'm wondering if God's around. God, you said you were going to be involved. And yeah, I know there was that whole Red Sea thing, and that was pretty great, but that was yesterday. What are you going to do for me today? Today I'm thirsty. We don't have anything to drink, God. It's a desert. And so they were saying, God, you brought us out of Egypt just to kill us? Why would you do that? If you're really God, where are you? Where are you right now? Where are you, God? And I thirst was what they were saying. The Spirit of the Lord, through Moses, came to them and they led them to a rock that was going to provide water. That is, I'm not a geologist. I'm going to be honest with you right up front. But rocks don't distribute water. That's not how they work. So this was another scenario where God was saying, out of nothing, here is something. You think that I'm not here. I'm here. Look at me in this place. And so this was a seminal moment in the early Israelite history. That moment was remembered that God showed again that He was faithful, that He would be there for them. And so the water came out of the rock and on that day, they wrote another covenant. And a covenant, even though they were complaining, God said, I'm in. I'm with you. We're together on this. They were frustrated. They were confused. And this, it's easy to identify what they do wrong. Isn't it obvious God was there? And yet I find that this is a statement that we say a lot. God, are you really there? Because I look at where I am, and this seems to indicate that God's not there. Because things aren't going the way I want them to go. I don't like the way things are. God, are you even here? Are you really God at all? Are you involved in this in any sort of way? And we struggle with that. And I think that that moment that Jesus on the cross said, I thirst, he was fulfilling more messianic prophecy from the Old Testament. He was saying, you're wondering? You're wondering if I'm the one? You're wondering if I'm the one you can depend on? Is this really the Christ or not? And we know that those Jewish people knew their Scriptures. They would have known the Psalm 22 that came up. They would have recognized his reference to um, Exodus chapter 7 and 8. And so when he said, um, oh, Justin just wrote back. What a distraction. He was very unkind when he wrote that. He said, blessed to tears. Thank you so much. You made a difference today. You didn't even mean to do it. God is at work in and through you. And so thank you. Thank you for doing that. You made a difference today. And that's beautiful. Totally lost my place. <laughs> so when they, they're thinking of Exodus 7 and 8, they had this place where there's a story that comes out. And Jesus loved stories. So he's telling the story, even on the cross, Remember when? Remember when you doubted God was there and He appeared? Remember when you thought there was no life from water and out of a rock came life? I'm the rock. I'm on the cross. I'm going to give you life. This moment that I'm about to die brings you life. The world changes from being that physical kingdom of Israel where everything that God talked about existed within a geographical, political sense. 
and it moves and it transforms into a spiritual kingdom, not limited by any border, not limited by any gender or race or political boundaries, not, not limited in any way. This is the spiritual kingdom that is being awakened. And he says, I am the life that you need now. This is the way forward. And it's, he is saying clearly, you're wondering, is God here? I am. Here I am. And so because of that moment, and because of other moments that are there, there's a centurion soldier who's on the ground and he's watching this. And he watches Jesus die. And then an earthquake happens and the, and the temple curtain is co- torn in two. And, and there's this big earthquake and there's a collapse of stuff. And the centurion looks around and he looks at Jesus and he says, surely this was the Son of God. In answer to the question, are you God? We read Psalm 22 and you'll get those references that come out. Again, like the Pharisees we talked about last week, they say, if you're the Christ, show yourself. If, that, if God really wants you, let him take you. Let him help you out. And Jesus answers not for himself, but for us. And he says, here I am. I thirst. And it reminds me of Matthew chapter 5 and 6. When we get into the Beatitudes, and Jesus is talking um, about the blesseds, Blessed are they. And he says, Blessed are you if you hunger and thirst for righteousness, for you shall be filled. The whole kingdom of heaven is, is based on a relationship with God, being in step with God, not doing the things that we think God wants us to do, but actually connecting with God himself directly, not through an act, but directly to God. Everything about that is seeking to live a life that is righteous. Can we achieve it on our own? Or what do we do? And that's the question that we struggle with. Will righteousness be something that we can grab on our own? Will we be righteous because of what we do? Or will we get this idea that we are righteous because of what he did on the cross? So now my inner thirst, my my inner hunger, my appetite is quenched when I enter into a relationship with Christ. He thirsts so that I can be satisfied. Now I've got to decide what to do with my thirst. I have a choice in this whole thing. Where am I going to go to get my thirst filled? My righteousness is no longer about I will become who I am to be through what I do. Now I do what I do out of who I already am because of what he's done. You might have to rewind that listen to that one again because that was a lot of Because of what he's done, that defines who we are. And Jesus there, he's saying, I am thirsty. And it is easy to say, well, it's obvious that he's just thirsty. That's what the whole reference is. But remember, in his life, he went into the desert for 40 days. For 40 days, he fasted. He knows what it is to go without. He knows what it was like to suffer in that time. 40 days and nights with no food. He was tempted by Satan himself in this place. He knows what that pressure is like. And when he's on the cross and he says, I'm thirsty, I have a feeling that it had an awful lot less about, it had an awful lot more about what he could give us than it had to do with what he actually needed. I am sure there's a part that had to do with what he needed, but I am sure that he understood his mission so clearly at that point that what he was thinking is, how can I give to them? This is why I came. 
I love them so much. I need to do this. And we've got to figure out how to live a life that brings us into a space, that, that God space where we actually live, we exist from the well within. There's got to be something that bubbles up from the inside that tells us that God wants this for us and we are connecting with him. In life, we are going to go through it and we're going to thirst for a lot of different things. We're going to hunger for a lot of different things. And it's going to come down to a place where you have to decide, is it just about me? Is it just about me being satisfied? Surely, mature Christianity is where I transition from everything is about me. Everything is done to support me. And I get to the place where I'm a life giver. Where I am now able to offer others a drink because they are thirsty. Our bubbling well feeds us so that we can start to respond to the needs of others. There's a great story um, in John, John chapter 4. If you have a Bible, go to John chapter 4. It's not going to be on the screen. Um, John chapter 4, we see Jesus in action. So for those of you who don't believe I actually own a Bible, I have a Bible, and my Bible is big. I have a big Bible this is my super-Christian Bible. I only pull it out on special occasions to amaze and tantalize people. But I do own a Bible. Here it is. And I want to read to you this story from John chapter 4. I'm sure you know it, but I want you to hear it again. The Pharisees heard that Jesus was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John. Although, in fact, it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. He did that so that no one could say their baptism was better always thinking about how we work, right? How, how we think, the competition. Um, when the Lord learned of this, he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now, he, he had to go through Samaria, so he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about the sixth hour. Sixth hour puts us at about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? And he said in that place, I thirst. His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. And Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God, who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us this well, and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his flocks and herds? And Jesus answered, everyone who drinks the water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Right there, that's got to be the picture of mature Christianity. The welling up from within, it goes past, I need from you. I have thirst. I need you to feed me. I need you to take care of me. I need you to provide. And it has to move to the place where you can say, there's so much welling up inside me. My connection to God brings about life and life abundant. I am there. I need to release. 
I have too much. I have to share. I need to provide. I need to feed someone else. This is a mark. If we have talked about some marks of maturity, some marks of Christianity, we looked at spiritual gifts for the first part of the year, trying to identify ways to help you grow. We've set aside our goal to say we're helping you to develop faith. We want your maturity to rise. This has got to be one of those marks. This is one of the ways that you can self-evaluate. How much do I need people to give to me, and how much am I able to give to someone else? It doesn't mean just trying to work hard and do things for people, but it's a natural connection that happens. Okay, so we go on. The woman said to him, Sir, give me the water so that I won't get thirsty. And I have come, and I don't have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, go back and get your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you have had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. And Jesus declared, Believe me, woman, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and His worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah, called Christ, is coming. When He comes, He will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I who speak to you am He. Jesus doesn't choose to reveal Himself all that much. He doesn't describe to people as He walks down the street, Messiah's here. Come. He calls them to the kingdom of God. And He is revealed by who He is and what He does, the character that He has. He displays and He constantly is fulfilling prophecies without saying, it's me. But to this woman, to this woman, he tells her, I'm the one you've been waiting for. I think the real thirst that Jesus is is actually um, concerned about here is that we would receive his life and that we would become life-giving people, that the kingdom of God would flow from us, that it would begin to exist not because it's been established and forced upon people, but because it's chosen and it's pervasive, and it's compelling, and we would learn how to give life to others. And they wouldn't have a question about whether or not I should become a Christian. You would be drawn in because of the aroma, because of the fragrance, because of the beauty, not because of our rules, because of our system, because of our beautiful buildings, but because of who we are. This is a transfer of understanding, again, from that physical, political kingdom on Israel to the spiritual kingdom of heaven coming amidst us, around us, um, rising up from within. And it takes a number of years for any person to begin to get everything that I need. We have that mindset, and it's deeply ingrained that I need, I need, I need help, I need security, 
I need more. Whatever it is I have, I need more than what I have. And this is part of that ongoing discovery of Christ, part of that spiritual journey, what we call the road trip in earnest pursuit of Christ. And it leads us to increasing awareness that not only are our needs met, where you can say, I feel strong enough, I feel confident enough to talk to others, to interact with them, to be honest about how I live and what I'm like, and just to tell the truth about Jesus, not to preach a sermon to people, but just to tell the truth. And we start to transition to that place of greater and greater maturity and faith. Now, I realize that it's not merely about what you can give me. It's not about what you can feed me. It's not about what I always need and how you need to quench my thirst. Now it's about a well that bubbles up within me that leads to eternal life, that comes out and feeds others, and I've become a source. I've become a life-giving person. I am being used by the Holy Spirit to transform the world around me. Jesus said, and God displayed throughout time, I work with you. Why did other people baptize? Because Jesus worked with people in partnership. God from the beginning has worked with people in partnership. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David, Samuel, he works in partnership. Not because he has to, but because he's chosen to. It would be so much easier for him to do it himself. But his choice is for you to be his partner. That we will work together in releasing this. There are three things that come up here. We'll just finish with this. There's need, seed, and feed. Need, we identify. Need always requires love. Jesus saw the need because of his love. Time and time again throughout the Gospels, Jesus stops and meets a need. Why? Because he loves people. He had an agenda. He had places to be. He had things that he was doing. He was on his way somewhere else. He had ministry-related things that he was doing. I'm going to go here and I'm going to preach. But on his way, on his way to fix something else, to go somewhere else, he's disrupted by a need. But I think what he was really disrupted by was love. Because it's easy to see a need and to walk by it. But Jesus saw a need and then responded with love. And he stopped. He stopped what he was doing. His love for people caused him to detour. He saw, and this is something we can replicate as well, he saw interruption as opportunity. We meet our spiritual opportunities. This is the, the providential relationships that we talk about when we talk about our, our faith catalysts, things that we're trying to um, engineer into your life to create an environment where these five things come up. And one of them is providential relationships. Right time, right place, it just happens. We watch for it, and then we respond to what God is opening for us. And even when it looked like things were being delayed and they, they weren't going to work out, it was okay. We should get to a place where no longer is it just about what you can do for me, but what can I do for you? We're going to move in that direction. Love sees need. Need requires love. And there's so much need in our world. There are so many different avenues, different styles, different flavors of need. And I will tell you, that when we see that need, we need to meet it with that secret weapon that Jesus said will transform your culture, transform your world. And that secret weapon is love. No one expects it. They expect retribution. It's love that causes us to see mercy and to be part of that process in helping. 
those with the gift of mercy, we need you to help us. We spent January, February, and part of March dealing with gifts. We need you to help us identify needs. Mercy people just see it. I'm not a mercy person. I need your help. We need your help. Speak up and point the way. Seed, the next part. The seed requires hope. Seed is what you put into the ground, hoping that the elements won't destroy it, but instead it will start to germinate and flourish and grow up. I've, uh, I've been involved in this, and maybe some of you had as well, because you've got kids and they have a project from school, right? You take the seed, you put it into the ground. They always say put it in your garden, but it usually goes into the styrofoam cup. Styrofoam cup on the windowsill, and you jam that thing in there, and uh, you, you water it, and then you've got to wait for it to grow. And once you tell kids, especially little kids, that it's going to grow, this is an impatient process. We want it to grow. Well, it's been in there for 15 minutes. It's been in there for a whole day. I don't see anything. Is it actually going to do anything? It seems like forever, and nothing is happening. We don't see what's going on. And it's, it's at least seven days before anything breaks through. But eventually, it breaks through, and that little shoot starts to poke out. Hope is what's required for things that aren't seen. There are many things in life right now that you can imagine that are not seen. Hope is part of our response to them. Hebrews 11 tells us a little bit about this. It says, now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. The Bible says that hope that is seen is not hope at all. So hope is what's required for what is unseen. Seed is always the potential of what can be. So we, we, we see need because of love. Love is what spurs us on. We see it. But hope says there's a better day. Hope says that God intervenes at some point. Hope says we can change this. Hope says we can be a part of what God's plan is for, for us and for you and for me and for us together. Hope is that part that the seed is about. The seed requires hope. But it comes back to the need. There's always two sides to need. There's the question we have to ask ourselves as believers, am I needy or am I needed? Am I a needy person? Which means you've always got to fix me. You've always got to develop me. You've always got to care for me. You give to me. Or am I needed? Which means I'm being called upon. Which means I make a difference. Which means I am giving life. And when love takes the center place in our heart, then we shift from being needy to being needed. Only then can we start to see that that seed requires hope. And that hope brings life. It's hope that brings out all of the potential. The news is going to give us all kinds of reasons for why not. All the reasons why we shouldn't. All the reasons that things are going to go wrong. Everything that's probably not going to happen right. You can't believe that. Don't trust this. But hope says it can work. Hope says that Jesus is on your side. Hope says that when you imagine the future, imagine some way that God intervenes. But when you on your own imagine the future, you will never put Jesus in your future. You just imagine things go on a steady decline. That's the way we think. But hope says there's something different. Hope says that God is involved. The seed requires hope. Need, seed, feed. The need requires love. The seed requires hope. And feed requires faith. And it's this difference between me having my needs met and moving to a place where I'm needed. Hope allows me to see the potential. 
the seed, the potential in people, mixed with faith. And in this, James describes faith. He says, as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. And then John, in 1 John, he describes love for us. Whoever claims to love God yet hates his brother or his sister is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. Faith says, let's move this across the line. Let's move this up a step. Let's kick this into action. And as we come along in Christianity, as we come along and mature in our faith and we journey towards Christ, we ought to be going further and further away from what I used to be and more and more to what Jesus is. That's why John the Baptist summarized this so well for us in John 3. He said, he must become greater, I must become less. At a time when everyone else said, you're losing all the stuff that you had, he got it. I become less so that he becomes more. That is the plan. That's the best case scenario. That's how everything works out to the very best that it can be. Faith moves us to action. Faith says, not only can I see the possibility, I'm going to be part of the reality. Faith says, I'm going to get involved. I'm going to get my hands dirty. I will risk. There's so many different projects. There's so many different things, so many different teams and ministries. There are so many things that we can do that we can partner with here. We can partner around the world. And maybe, just maybe, faith, hope, and love, maybe that's all that's required to turn individual stories around. So I'd encourage you, please share your faith. Please share your hope. Please share your love. We need you to make a difference. This kingdom of God needs you to make that difference. We, as a church, need you to make that difference. And we have a spot for you. We studied spiritual gifts before this, opening us up to a potential of ministry and hands-on kind of stuff. And now we need you to put them into action. We need you to come and get your hands dirty, to be involved in something that might actually break your heart, to be involved with someone that you can make a difference with. You need to give life. Where? Where will you do that? What thirst will you help to meet? Where can you be life-giving? Let's pray. Kind Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you because your word is powerful and it is true. We understand that you are trying to bring us all to a place where we can, we can live securely, founded in your love, and that out of that we can have a hope for a brighter day. We can have faith to activate and to, and to bring change throughout this community. Teach us. Lead us and satisfy us completely. Please, Holy Spirit, fill us with your faith, your hope, and your love. Direct us to serve and release what you have given for the building up of the church. We pray in Jesus' name. Christ in front of you. Christ behind you. Christ above you. And Christ below you. Christ to your left. Christ to your right, Christ in your present, Christ in your future, the Spirit of Christ within you. And now to the King of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, 
be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Be blessed in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. You may be seated. Thanks for being with us today. It's better when you're here.